0: Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome back to the OSHA 3030 with Manish Rath. We have a great topic today, and, uh, and this, for those of you just joining the community, uh, the OSHA 3030 community for the first time, this is a program that we do about every 30 days, and we try and cover a new developing issue in OSHA law in the field of occupational safety and health law in about 30 minutes. I'm joined today by my colleague, Javane Nakumaram. Javane, welcome, and thank you very much for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me, Manish. I think this is a really great topic for today.
0: I think it's a great topic. Uh, As I mentioned, I'm Manish Rath. We are here at Keller and Heckman in Washington, D.C. And uh, for those of you who who have participated in other programs but want to see if they've missed any, all of our episodes are libraried on our website, khlaw.com slash... OSHA 3030. And, and you can catch, when you go to that website, you can catch all of our past episodes uh, of the OSHA 3030 that span over seven years. Uh, both the slide deck and the audio are linked together and play in a self-executed file. You should also know that we rebroadcast this program as a podcast and it is available on your favorite uh, uh, podcast streaming app, like Apple iTunes or the Apple Podcast app. Uh, we're even on Spotify. We're also on SoundCloud. And so, so if you just subscribe as a podcaster, it will automatically get downloaded the sound portion, and it's a good way to catch our program on the go. So with that said, Javane why don't we get started talking about what we're going to talk about. The case that we've, we've selected today is a D.C. Circuit opinion. That is the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Circuit of the District of Columbia, one of the highest courts in the land, and by being a, a Circuit Court of Appeals court. And the case is Manuas Incorporated versus the Secretary of Labor. Great case.
1: I agree. So, um, what we're going to do is we'll, we'll, we'll start with just some of the, the background of the case, and then we'll review one of the most uh, cited decisions that uh, Manua's relied on throughout this case, which was the Sa- Sasser Electric Manufacturing Company decision, and then we'll review some of the, the key concepts of the employer's reliance on the contractor's safety expertise. Uh, And then we'll get to the D.C. Circuit decision. And then finally, as always, what employers should do.
0: Yeah, and there's quite a bit, I think, uh, under that last category, these practical takeaway items that you can walk out of this program with to, to improve your safety and health program as you go forward in light of the Manua's decision. I should point out that we are going to refer to Manua's with the possessive Uh, apostrophe s at the end. This is a grocery store, basically. This is a retail store. And like a lot of grocery stores, Albertsons, for example, there's an apostrophe Mm. s at the end, (laughs) as is the case for Manoa's. So our case, uh, for those of you who haven't heard of this particular grocery store or go shopping there frequently on Saturday mornings, uh, there's a reason for that. Our case is set in Pago Pago on the American Samoa. Mm -hmm. Uh, islands. And this is the second uh, OSHA 3030 in a row that we uh, find ourselves in in the South mm-hmm. Pacific, uh, which is extremely unusual. But these are U.S. protectorates and therefore within the jurisdiction of of OSHA. Mm-hmm. So here's mm-hmm. what happened. Manua, is the retail store, wanted to engage in some construction at one of its retail stores. And uh, it hired a contractor to engage in the crane operation work for removing steel beams uh, from from sh- a shipping container and placing them for staging for construction. So the crane operator it selected was uh, APECs or Apex, I suppose, and and they they engaged this crane operator to unload or offload these steel beams and put them, stage them on site for for the next step. And, and some Manua employees were there for the offloading process. They, they were assisting in various tasks with the project. But Apex was the one actually operating the crane and doing the offloading task. Apex uh, engages in the task. Its crane operator is operating the crane. It didn't take the preliminary safety measure, as required under the crane's standard, of measuring the distance from the crane to any overhead power lines. And unfortunately, while unloading steel beams, the crane boom touched a live power line. And the result was catastrophic. Three of Minua's employees were electrocuted and killed. Several others were, were hospitalized
1: right and i think it's also worth noting that not only did apex not you know measure the distance from the power line to the crane but they also they they failed to provide any safety information or training to any of manua's employees who were helping out with the project apex when they were negotiating their agreement with manua they they asked that a crew of manua employees help out with some of the Uh, some some of the uh, attaching the beams to the crane. And so uh, they failed to, you know, help those employees understand the safety precautions. And then they also um, failed to do any of their own evaluations. And it wasn't part of the agreement with uh, with MANUAs to begin with. So there are several uh, steps that were missed in this process before the incident occurred.
0: Yeah, what they essentially did, Javanet, was they just engaged Apex and had them do it. They didn't go through any instructions to Apex. They didn't ask any questions of Apex as to how the work was going to be done, and and they they just expected Apex to come do the job. and And in addition, they didn't, had never engaged Apex to do this work before, which is understandable. I mean, this is not Manuas is a, a retailer; it's not in the construction space. But but those were omissions that you would not see, hopefully, from participants, experienced participants in the construction industry, the way you saw that with Manua's engaging in its own construction. So OSHA comes in, they conduct an inspection, and they, they issue citations for several citation items under the Cranes and Derricks standard. Manua's... Files a notice of contest, and they ask to be heard before an administrative law judge. And this goes through to uh, the administrative law judge for decision. Manu's argument was essentially, look, Apex was engaged to handle the crane. They handled the crane. They handled the crane in an unsafe manner. They didn't look out for overhead power lines, and they made contact with an overhead power line. that, failure to clear the site of overhead power lines or to maintain a safe distance was the violation of the requirement under the crane standard. And so that failure properly belongs to Apex. We're a grocery retailer. We engage them to handle the crane operations. They should know how to do it safely. And, and that, that seems to me, Manua argued, to be something that we shouldn't be held liable for. The administrative law judge whom we know argued before in the past, is an excellent judge. Uh, She essentially said, uh, well, I've looked at both arguments, and it does appear that MNUAs, when you look at the facts of their involvement in that particular task, did share some responsibility for compliance with the standard. And specifically they they ought to have known to comply with the standard with respect to clearance uh, f- away from overhead power lines. Manua's challenged this administrative law ju- judge decision to the Review Commission. And the Review Commission sat on this uh, and issued a decision last summer, I think. Uh, no, it would have been earlier than that. It would have been early uh, last year at the earliest. So I think it would have been late 2018. And and the review commission agreed with the administrative law judge, and petition uh, and uh, Manuas petitioned then to move to the D.C. Circuit Court. So to be clear, the decision from the review commission was issued, uh, and then th- and that, that upheld the administrative law judge's decision, and then the uh, folks at Manuas challenged this to the D.C. Circuit Court. So, and that was July of uh, 2018 that the Review Commission issued its decision and then the D.C. Circuit Court issued its opinion uh, I think uh, in uh, last month, a couple of weeks ago, January 28th. And now we are here uh, at the OSHA 3030 to review the D.C. Circuit Court opinion, which was issued two weeks ago.
1: So, I think uh, to Uh, before we get into the D.C. Circuit decision, it's important to point out the precedent that Manua's uh, wanted to rely on in order to argue that it was not Manua's responsibility for the OSHA violations that occurred, but it was, in fact, the contractor's uh, responsibility. So the uh, precedent that Manua's relies on is called the Sasser Electric Manufacturing Company uh, case, which is a, a review commission decision. And so this decision... Uh, they had a lot of similar facts to the Manua decision, but I think the the main uh, takeaway is that this decision provides a narrow exception to the rule that an employer is responsible for OSHA violations. There is a narrow exception that an employer is justified in relying on a, an expert or a specialist uh, to protect protect against hazards related to the specialist's expertise so long as this reliance is reasonable and the employer has no reason to foresee that uh, any of the work will be performed unsafely. So when this Sasser decision, the employer had hired a a crane operator to lift a generator off the ground and place it on a trailer. And Sasser hired the crane operator to do this kind of work in the past, like roughly six separate times. So they were familiar with their history and they had no issues in the past. Uh, And in this case, there were overhead power lines on the work site. And uh, Sasser warned the crane operator about them. But uh, when the crane operator was moving the generator onto the trailer, it unfortunately touched a live power line. Um, and this caused the death of a Sasser employee.
0: In other words, the facts in Sasser were remarkably similar. Very similar. similar. Right.
1: right. Um, and so Sasser was cited uh for violating an OSHA standard that prohibits bringing a crane within 10 feet of a live power line. But Sasser argued that they were not responsible because they reasonably relied on the crane operator's expertise. And so uh, the, this case was uh, taken before the review commission and the review commission decided that Sasser's reliance on the crane operator was in fact reasonable because Sasser had no expertise in operating cranes and uh, only the crane operator was in direct control of the crane. And then finally the entire job only took a few minutes so the violation was very sudden. It wasn't a long you know, ongoing violation. So that's essentially the criteria that was applied to you know what is a reasonable reliance on a contractor. And the what we call the Sasser exception, it was uh, contrasted in another case uh, which is called Fabi Construction Company.
0: Yeah, it's really an exception to the exception, if you will, mm-hmm. or or an example of when the Sasser exception would not apply.
1: right. So in this case, uh, the DC, and this was a D.C. Circuit case, uh, it explained that an employer's reliance on a specialist is unreasonable when the employer has a reason to foresee danger to its employees. And the court looked at the employer's expertise, its amount of control over the work site, and the amount of uh, the duration of the violation as factors to look at in figuring out is this reasonable or unreasonable reliance. So in the Fabi case, The employer construction company, they hired uh, a contractor to do shop drawings to provide specific building directions to its workers. And these drawings contained errors. So unfortunately, when employees uh, poured concrete uh, into a hotel parking garage in accordance with these drawings, uh, the garage collapsed and killed four Fabby employees.
0: This was the Tropicana Casino in Atlantic City.
1: Right, it was very, very unfortunate. And so Fabi was cited for several OSHA violations, but they again, they argued they were not responsible for the OSHA violations because they relied on the contractor who did the shop drawings. But the DC circuit here disagreed that they, uh, that Fabi's reliance was reasonable. Uh, Fabi, unlike in the Sasser case, Fabi's, they had expertise in shop drawings and they in fact reviewed the contractor's shop drawings and revised them. And they uh, interpreted the shop drawings, and the employees there were executing the plans directed by the drawings, so they were much more involved. Um, And also, uh, Fabi was aware of hazards that were presented by these drawings for weeks, and they had time to recognize and abate the hazards. And so therefore, due to all those factors, their reliance on the contractor was unreasonable. So it's different than Sasser.
0: There's a lot of things different with it. When you see an error in a shop drawing, Mm -hmm. of course, Fabi... Implements the shop drawings, and so there's no doubt that they know how to read the shop drawing. Uh, whereas, as you say, and, and that, that shop drawing they had for a long period of time, a couple of weeks. Whereas, as you say, when it talks, when you talk about crane operating, like in Sasser or here in the Manuas case, you are looking at something that's happening in real time. The violation occurs, and within a second or seconds, the uh, hazard emerges. And that's precisely why you need somebody to operate the crane in an expert manner, expert as to safe operation, not just operation. So so the D.C. Circuit looks at all of the arguments from both sides mm-hmm. as to whether or not the review commission applied the uh, Sasser exception appropriately. And essentially, it comes down to this, whether or not the review commission issued its decision in an arbitrary manner is fundamentally based on whether or not Manua's was reasonable in relying on its contractor, APEX, to perform the work safely. When the D.C. Circuit looked at the facts that were similar to the Sasser opinion and dissimilar to the Sasser opinion, it essentially concluded that the Review Commission got it right, that Manuas was not reasonable in essentially handing off the entirety of the responsibility for safety to Apex without regards to what what steps Manuas could have taken to improve safety during the crane operation for that offloading task. Uh, It's true that in Manuas and in Sasser, uh, the crane operator was hired out to a contractor. And it's also true that the understanding between Manuas and its crane operator was the same, essentially, as with Sasser and its crane operator, that in both cases the understanding didn't specifically mention uh, the responsibility for sa- compliance with safety standards. Um, neither Sasser nor Manuas asked their respective crane operators, what safety measures you, are you going to take? Uh, there is one difference, uh, although it's tr- also true, by the way, that Sassers and Manua's both had their own employees at the task site when the task was being performed. Uh, the level of involvement between the two was slightly different. Sassers' employer employees were observing, and Manua's employees were actually participating. As you say, Javane, they were performing the rigging prior to the hoisting, and they were uh, calling out to the crane operator. Which, by the way, the folks at Apex testified meant that it was Manua's employees that were giving signals to the crane operator. Manua argued, no, no, that wasn't signaling. That was just our employees happened to be uh, talking to the crane operator. There's a a level of difference based on who's controlling the task. And Manua's argued that it was the folks at Apex, the crane operator. Nevertheless, there is that dispute, which didn't exist in Sasser. So the D.C. Circuit concluded that there were some relevant distinctions. First of all, uh, that higher degree of involvement by Manua's employees, they were actually involved in work, the rigging, the being on site, and calling out to the crane operator. And the idea that Manua's had never used APEX and thus would have had a higher degree of responsibility for vetting whether APEX was capable of doing this work safely or whether it would engage in any preliminary safety practices like site inspection. Uh, and, and just generally that MANUAs had no agreement where APEX was specifically assigned, with, assigned safety responsibilities. Uh, finally, Manuas got to decide where the the steel beams would be placed and where the contain the shipping containers were to be deposited for offloading and then subsequent placing of the uh, of the of the beams. And so, since Apex was using locations that Manuas had cited and selected, it would have been the circuit court argued it would have been the responsibility of Manua to cite the shipping containers and the placement of the steel beams in a safe location away from overhead beams. So in, as a result of all of that, the Circuit Court concluded that it wasn't reasonable for Manua's to simply rely on APEX to come in and do the job uh, safely. They should have taken a little bit more of a hand on the subject of uh, safety and health and how to perform that task safely. Okay, well that's Manua's. In light of the case, let's talk about what you, as a part of the OSHA 3030 community, can take away from the Manua's case in order to improve the safety and health operations at your work site.
1: Right. I think there are some important lessons to take away from this case. So first, we recommend that. Um, you use a job bid process to evaluate a contractor's ability to perform the job safely and the safety measures that will be used. I think one of the big issues in the Manua case was when they were uh, looking for a contractor to hire, they didn't even ask about what safety measures that APEX was going to use um, and they didn't know their history and they hadn't wor- they hadn't worked with them before to uh, come in order for them to form a, a reasonable reliance that they would be performing the job safely. So doing that upfront research and having that information ahead of time would be really helpful.
0: Well, Joven, I think much to be clear, much more importantly, it's important to bid out the process. Manu is so selected from anything I could tell from the opinions, uh, contacting APEX and just having them do the job. And what what a what an employer can do in order to make use of uh, its reliance on experts as an affirmative defense is to start with a bid process. And one of the questions that has to be asked in the bid process is, what is your experience with this kind of task? What safety steps do you propose taking if you get this work? And Review all bids and, in part, their answers to this question and see how they propose to do the job in a manner that's safe and what safety measures they specifically propose taking. Even if you select a different contractor, you will learn what safety measures the community of bidders is severally proposing. And you may cross-pollinate some of those ideas to other, um, uh, uh, other subcontractors to try and Vet whether or not the selected or non selected vendors' methodologies are the best practice that can be implemented for your particular task. So, that job bid process is the starting point where you got to start thinking about safety. It's too late when your subcontractor arrives on site. Uh, then, when you've reviewed all of these bids and you select a bidder, then the engagement in contract should incorporate the information that's exchanged during the bid process. In other words, if a bidder said that he would perform a job using safety measures A, B, and C, those safety measures A, B, and C should be incorporated in the contract. Now they should be contractually bound to uh, put up what they promised that they would do in a manner that they said they would do it. So, so those are twins, the bid process, and then confirming it, nailing it down in the contract are twin steps and safety should be the safety steps for the task should be incorporated in both parts of this dual relationship between bids and contracts
1: right and i think going along with that as well is reviewing the contractor safety history prior to selection and uh requiring that the contractor only provide workers with the safety training that's relevant for the site? Well, that first
0: one can be done in the bid step. When you go through the bid process, you should have bidders provide their safety history. This should be in the form of uh, OSHA citations as well as workers' comp records. Then, when you select a a contractor, you you should require by contract that the only workers that are sent to your job site are ones that have received safety training for how to do this task safely. Uh, Again, the twin relationship between bidding and contracting manifests itself on the question of safety history, the use of workers, training of workers, et cetera. Uh, And then then it's not enough after you've selected the bidder and he's promised that he will do the job safely and how he will do the job safely. Uh, Then I think you have some responsibility as the person who controls the site. Remember the workplace, uh, the multi-employer work site doctrine uh, still reserves some exposure or liability or responsibility to the person who can control the hazards of the work site itself. So if there are hazards that are uh, native to the work site, and overhead power lines would be an example, then it's the responsibility of the job owner to convey or communicate those hazards to the contractor and say, hey, listen, and when you come on our site, you should know about a series of features. Here's where the gas pipes are. Here's where the overhead lines are. There's pits, trenches, uh, et cetera. This is what the soil condition looks like. Or we don't know anything about the soil condition. We require you to perform soil testing. Those are the kinds of uh, things that are natural to the job site that need to be communicated. Confined spaces is another one. Uh, and, and that duty, I don't know how you can contract that one away. If you're aware of job hazards that are part and parcel of the site, then that's your duty to communicate those to your vendor.
1: I think that's right. And that's what Sasser did. And in that case, the employer notified the crane operator that there were overhead power lines. Right. And
0: Manua's didn't.
1: Mm-hmm. That's right. Um, I think also uh, it's important to clearly define the, you know, yours, the employer's versus the contract worker's responsibilities if you're working on a project together. As we saw in the Manua case, we had both Apex and Manua's employees doing this whole project together, and yet um, it was unclear who's responsible for training and for the safety component of that. And so it's important to figure out in advance what are the contractor's employees going to do versus your own employees if they're required to help.
0: Well, the contractor doesn't have control over a lot of elements of the property. So, for example, cleanup in between shifts is going to be the responsibility of the job owner. Uh, the the other In this particular example, we had overhead power lines. Th- these things should be spelled out in the contract. Who is responsible for which safety-related tasks? And every single element of it should be spelled out the best at, that you can uh, anticipate those kinds of uh, responsibilities coming up. So for the example of the overhead power lines, Manuas should have reserved onto itself, an employer should reserve onto itself the duty to de-energize those power lines during the time in which the 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 overhead crane work is being done, by maybe contacting the local utility and asking that it be de-energized. Who's going to provide the safety monitor to constantly monitor that the job is being done safely? Well, if it's a technical task that requires specific expertise, crane operating may be one of them, then you will want to allocate by contract the duty to provide constant job safety monitoring that the contractor must provide that service. Uh, you may require that the employees, as, as we mentioned earlier, the employees who come on site, you may require that they all receive safety training and identify the specific safety uh, topics that they need to be trained on before coming on board, not just safe crane operation, but maybe you need to have them trained on personal protective equipment. You may need to have them trained on uh, uh, where, where trenches are or what to do about them. Uh, there's a whole bunch of uh, safety topics that each employer may want his subcontractors to be trained on depending on the specific hazards of the job site, confined spaces, for example. And, and then there may be job site hazard awareness training that you may need to conduct yourself for your own employees, and you may require your contractors to send their employees to attend this training as well. Now, I will note, by the way, I'm well aware that OSHA or the Department of Labor have exchanged memoranda suggesting that the training element of a subcontractors' employees may be may create an opening for OSHA to allege that there's uh, shared liability. Uh, but when it comes to safety and health, that may be one fact that you may have to concede in order to make sure that uh, safety is achieved. In other words, if by training all visitors on where the job hazards are, the site hazards are, uh, or what precautions need to be taken when entering the site, such as sound protection, bump hats, et cetera, uh, hearing conservation protection I meant, then then that may just be the the cost of having to make sure that everything is as safe as achievable on that job site, even if there is an acknowledged assumption of risk that OSHA might allege that that served as evidence of some kind of co-employment relationship. The last thing I want to say is to be mindful that the the idea that you can rely on the expertise of your special subject matter experts, like crane operation, uh, is a defense. It's something that you have to be mindful of, that this is an affirmative defense. And this is noted both by the Review Commission and by the D.C. Circuit. This is an affirmative defense, which means you have to raise the subject ahead of time at the initial exchange of pleadings. And all affirmative defenses have to be noted at the initial exchange of pleadings. That means, and this is becoming a constant theme, Jovenet, uh, here at the OSHA 3030, the theory of the case has to be well thought out and premised upon a thorough investigation at the earliest stage of taking on a, a contest against a OSHA citation. And too often I see examples, and I think this is another one, where where the theory of the case develops during the course of uh, litigation in preparing for uh, submitting a matter to the administrative law judge for decision. Whereas some of the issues that you're going to raise, like this one, the idea that you you should be entitled to rely on experts, is one that should be thoroughly evaluated at the pleading stage, at the very beginning stage, so that it can be raised as an affirmative defense or so that you can evaluate the evidence and, and make a determination if perhaps you don't have such a great uh, affirmative defense, after all, based on the evidence. Okay, looks like I got the last word this time for the OSHA thirty. Mm-hmm. this month's OSHA 3030. Uh, for interim developments, you can catch more news on our LinkedIn pages. Javane Nukumram, I know you have a LinkedIn page, I do as well. Our colleagues, several of them, David Savati, Larry Halperin, John Gustafson, and several others, as well as the Keller and Hel- Heckman Workplace Safety and Health LinkedIn page. We also have uh, Twitter, Newsfeeds at Rathmonish is one of them. Uh, this program, the OSHA 3030, is a podcast available on uh, Apple Podcasts as well as SoundCloud, Spotify, uh, and perhaps others that are your favorite uh, podcast streaming apps. The next OSHA 3030 will be on March 18th, 2020, always on a Wednesday, always at 1 p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, to register or to find more information, you can catch it at khlaw.com. Dot com slash OSHA 3030. Remember, when you get an invitation by email for the next OSHA 3030, all we ask in exchange for the, the information that we provide through this program is that you forward this program onto three new, three additional recipients so that we can continue to increase the awareness of the program, spread the good word, and increase the size of the community by which may, we may all benefit. Uh, In addition to the OSHA 3030, we have sister programs, the TOSCA 3030 and REACH 3030, which will be held next on March 11th, as well, the FIFR 3030. Uh, And that brings us around to our conclusion for this month's OSHA 3030. On behalf of all of us at Keller and Heckman, on behalf of my colleague, Javane Nakumaram, and myself, thank you very much for participating in this month's OSHA 3030. And until next month, stay safe.